This evening, we read from 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to verse 19, found on page 1206 in the Pew Bibles. Page 1206, the word of our Lord as we find it in 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 12 and reading through verse 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And may the Lord bless the reading and the study of his holy and infallible word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, one of the most popular preachers in America has a message that most everybody wants to hear his message is that God's will for your life is that you have plenty of wealth, that because of your strong faith, you have very good health, that you have a lot of friends, that basically you have here on earth a taste of heaven, heaven on earth, because of the prosperity that God gives you. His message is known as the prosperity gospel. And it's a message that many people find very attractive. But if Peter, if Peter were alive on earth today, I'm sure it is a message that he would disagree with. It is a message that he would denounce. Have you ever noticed how often Peter addresses the reality of suffering as a Christian? He begins writing about it in the very first verse of this first letter. It is written between the lines in that first verse where the apostle Peter addresses God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's a picture of Christians who are outnumbered. It's a picture of Christians who are scattered in the world. And those in the world far outnumber the believers, and yet these are God's elect. The suffering is written between the lines. 
By the sixth verse of chapter 1, he is already speaking about suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And that theme of suffering continues throughout his letter as we begin a new section in his letter here in chapter 4, verse 12. We read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why is Peter's message so different from the message of many popular preachers today? Some commentators point out that Peter addresses suffering so frequently because he is writing both to Jewish readers and also to Gentile readers. And the Jewish readers in the first century certainly would have understood what it was like to suffer as God's special people. After all, throughout their history, they had experienced suffering precisely because they were God's people. They were in bondage some 400 years in Egypt. And then Israel was brought into captivity by the Assyrians and Judah by the Babylonians. The Israelites including the Jews of the first century, knew what it was like to suffer because of their identity with the Lord. And these who were under Roman rule in the first century understood that clearly. But as Christianity spread and as Gentiles became saved, the concept of suffering for their faith was new to them. These Gentiles had previously worshipped the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, the other pagan gods, and they never were ridiculed or persecuted for their faith in these false gods. For instance, if one of them went to the temple of Artemis and there worshipped those false goddesses and gods engaging in the immoral activity that went on there, no one would ridicule them, no one would persecute them. That was socially acceptable within their culture. But now, by God's grace, as they heard the gospel, these Gentiles were coming out of their pagan worship, and they were coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as they did so, they faced ridicule. They they faced persecution and great suffering. Rather than trying to present them with a prosperity gospel, And saying, if your faith is only great enough, you won't suffer. The apostle Peter and the other apostles spoke to them honestly, not only about the joy, the true wonderful joy of salvation, but also about the reality and the hardship of bearing the name of Christ and suffering, sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Why do Christians face trial, persecution, and even martyrdom? The main reason is that we are identified with Jesus Christ. As verse 13 puts it, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And verse 16 adds, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Those who believe in Christ 
were first called Christians in Antioch, but the name was not given to those who believed in Christ out of respect. Rather, it was given to them out of disdain. Up until the name Christian was applied to them, those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ were known simply as believers or disciples or those who belonged to the way. Why then did the people of Antioch call the believers Christians? It was because most of them wanted to identify the believers with someone whom they detested, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And they also detested his followers, so they called them Christians. They rejected the message of the gospel. They rejected the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Most of them wanted nothing at all to do with the gospel, with the message of salvation that you needed to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved from your sin and reconciled to this eternal, almighty God. And they certainly didn't want any part of the message that believing in Christ meant that you had to live a transformed life of purity and holiness rather than debauchery and revelry. It was out of that type of ridicule. It was out of that type of disdain that the name Christian came to be coined, came into being by the unbelievers in Antioch. And the same disdain impacts Christians today. Christians around the world suffer the most inhumane treatment imaginable. Why? Because they bear the name of Christ. At the root of the suffering brought on by persecution is hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ and thus a hatred for those who by His grace have saving faith in Him. They are identified with Him by name, and by their conduct. As Jesus said in John 15, verse 18 to 21, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you when I told you that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. And because of that hostility that the world has for Christians, you might expect that all Christians, along with the uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who face severe uh, persecution around the world, uh, th that for all Christians, uh, their faith would be such a great burden to bear. It might make it seem as though Christians would have nothing but sorrow that every Christian would be like Eeyore, 
that depressed donkey from Winnie the Pooh, or like Sad Sack, that cartoon character from a former generation who always had that cloud of trouble that followed him wherever he went. But this passage reminds us that through suffering, even through severe persecution, we are blessed with great spiritual blessings. Did you pick up on that? In verse 13 and 14, Peter writes, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It is because of our identity with Christ that we face the disdain, the ridicule, and persecution of those in the world. But it is also because of our identity with Christ that we share in His glory. That is what verse 13 is telling us. And verse 14 is teaching us that when we are insulted because of our identity with Christ, we do indeed receive a great blessing for the Spirit of glory. The Spirit of God rests upon us and gives us the strength and the peace and the comfort that we need amid the persecution and ridicule that we face. Perhaps... Peter was reflecting on the Beatitudes as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this passage. Perhaps he was reflecting on what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Perhaps it is hard for us to imagine living in a land where we have not faced physical persecution that there could possibly be any type of blessing or joy in facing imprisonment for our faith in Jesus Christ. Yet the apostles took great joy in knowing that their identity with Christ caused them to suffer just as Jesus had also faced ridicule, disdain, persecution, crucifixion. For example... In Acts chapter 5, we read how the authorities called the apostles in and had them flogged because they were proclaiming the gospel. It says, then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And Acts 5 verse 41 says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They had been flogged. They were in physical pain, but they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And not only did they rejoice that they had been flogged, 
disgraced for bearing the name of Christ. But also, verse 42 of that chapter describes how they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The reaction of those apostles in the first century as they rejoiced in the persecution that they faced is not an isolated event. It has been repeated innumerable times over the course of the history of the New Testament church. Just one example out of many is that example of Gildo de Bray, the author of the Belgic Confession. You may recall that when he was imprisoned, awaiting execution on the gallows, he wrote to his wife, Remember that I did not fall into the hands of my adversaries by mere chance, but through the providence of God who controls and governs all things. Writing to a former congregation, he added, As for my chains and my bonds, rather than frightening me and filling me with horror, on the contrary, they are my delight and my glory. I count them more precious than gold. His last words before being hung at the age of 47 were my brother's. I am condemned to death today for the doctrine of the Son of God. Praise be to Him. I would have never thought that God would have given me such an honor. Because we live in a land where throughout our history as a nation, it has been socially acceptable to be a Christian. It is good for us to take Peter's warnings about the reality of suffering for the name of Christ to heart. The winds of change have come across our nation forcefully and rapidly. And in that way, we are much like the Gentiles in the first century. Uh, they had never suffered persecution or ridicule for what they believed when they were worshiping the false gods. But when they came to saving faith in Christ, they too would suffer persecution and ridicule. In our culture, we are seeing a growing hostility against those who bear the name of Christ, against those who are Christian. But in years to come, we may face more than just ridicule and disdain. We may face more than just economic sanctions, such as some Christian bakers and florists and other business people have experienced. In years to come, we may face in this nation the type of persecution that the faithful people of God in other parts of the world have experienced and are now experiencing as well. And should such persecution, even martyrdom, come into our land, we must stand firm, remembering these promises that there is blessing when we are persecuted because we bear the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We bear the name Christian. However, this passage, perhaps you noticed, also teaches that we suffer according to God's will and that it is hard to be saved. 
In other words, our, our suffering isn't just because of the hostility of those around us, nor is it just happenstance when we suffer various trials and circumstances beyond our control. Instead, verse 19 tells us that we suffer according to God's will. Why would God include suffering for His dearly loved people? Does that make God a cruel God who delights in the painful trials of His children? Quite the contrary. The purpose of suffering according to the will of God, described in verse 19, can be more clearly seen in verse 12. In a certain sense, verse 12 and verse 19 serve as bookends that hold together the other verses within this passage. The painful trials that come as we suffer according to God's will are a result of God refining us and purifying us, sanctifying us, much as a goldsmith will use fire to remove the dross from gold and to bring out the purity of that precious metal. Peter had previously written about that in chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 7. He had described the great blessing of having a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he described the great blessing of having an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade away, kept in the glory of heaven for those of us who, by God's grace, have saving faith in our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. But then he adds, after describing some of these great blessings that come to those of us who believe in Christ. He adds, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In those verses, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that our trials are for our good. They sanctify us, and as God strengthens us through them, God is glorified. A familiar hymn describes God's sanctifying work through our trials. The fourth stanza of that hymn, How Firm a Foundation, summarizes God's promises. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume your gold to refine. In this passage then, we see that our identity with Christ necessitates suffering, yet our identity with Christ brings us great joy. The passage enables us to relate to the truth of Scripture in other places, such as Acts 14, verse 22, which tells us, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. 
But as we suffer according to God's will, even undergoing fiery trial, we do so with the knowledge of Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The apostle writes, and that is why when you suffer because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you can rejoice that you participate in those sufferings. As verse 16 reminds us, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Praise God that he shapes and molds us through the trials that we face so that our dross, as it were, is removed, so that the gold is refined, so that we are purified and sanctified as God uses those trials to cause us to lean ever more fully and completely upon Him as we realize how weak we really are and how much we need His almighty strength. Verse 19 gives us another application as we realize that God's grace is indeed sufficient for even the most painful thorns of life. Verse 19 yet gives us another application as we suffer according to the will of our faithful God. It says that we are to commit ourselves to our faithful Creator. We recognize that the Lord sustains everything that He created. When He created this world, He didn't just put it together the way a watchmaker would put together a pocket watch years ago with the gears and the springs and the mechanisms. God didn't just put the world together and then wind it up like a pocket watch and let it tick off the time. Some people believe He did. They are known as deists. But we know from Scripture that the Lord, having created the world, upholds and sustains what He has created by His work of providence. And what is true for the world is true for each individual. It's true for you, and it's true for me. After all, the Lord knit us together in our mother's womb. The Lord knew us long before we were born. The Lord has determined the number of days that each one of us will live. As Psalm 139, 16 declares, All the days ordained for me to live were written in your book before one of them came into being. Consequently, the Lord has a thorough and a loving knowledge of your life and of my life. He has a thorough and loving knowledge about each one who by His grace has placed their faith in Him. He has also promised to meet our needs and to uphold us through whatever trials and suffering we may face, never leaving us, never forsaking us. That familiar hymn that you sang this morning contains this precious promise from Isaiah 41, verse 10, where the Lord comforts His people by saying, Fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Commit yourself to your Creator. Grow in grace and knowledge of His name. Immerse yourself in His Word. Be faithful in prayer. Be faithful in using every opportunity to grow near to your Lord. Commit yourself to Him, and He will indeed uphold you through whatever suffering and trial you face in life. He will do so, even as He brings judgment on those who reject the gospel, disdain the Lord, and ridicule His people. Peter writes about that in verse 17 and 18. Those verses have caused some confusion because they speak of judgment on the family of God. The word for judgment in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, is used in that context in a disciplinary fashion, not a punitive fashion. As God disciplines those whom he loves and shapes and molds them through the trials that they face in life. But the judgment that each one of us deserves for our sin was borne by Jesus on the cross. Those who have rejected him and in turn reject and ridicule and persecute those who bear his name will face judgment an eternal judgment unless they repent. Peter quotes from Proverbs eleven thirty one and verse 18 when he asks, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? The word scarcely in the Greek can refer to difficulty and many translations uh, Translate this verse as it is difficult for the righteous to be saved. The righteous are saved with difficulty, both in the humiliation and suffering of Jesus Christ, which was a difficulty beyond our ability to even begin to grasp the enormity of the suffering and the pain that Jesus underwent, not just with the physical crucifixion, but the separation from the Father with whom he is one from all eternity, along with the Holy Spirit, to be separated on the cross as he bore the sins of his people. The righteous are saved with difficulty for Jesus and also those who are called by his name. We face so many temptations, so many trials. We face the seduction of the world and the attack of the devil. We have those three sworn enemies of the world, the devil, and unfortunately our own sinful nature as we look in the mirror and often see that we ourselves are our own worst enemy. The question of verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If it's difficult to be a Christian... What will become of the ungodly and the sinners who don't repent? It's a rhetorical question reminding us of the certainty of judgment for all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Their judgment will be severe and their judgment will indeed be an eternal judgment where the fire is not quenched 
if you are among those who have never come to the Lord in humble repentance and saving faith, know that today is a day of salvation. Take to heart the words of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 and 2, he writes, We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is a time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. No matter what is in your past, no matter what sins are in your present, what temptations you struggle with, you can come to Christ with full, complete assurance that He will forgive you, He will accept you, for He has promised all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will by no means cast out the one who comes to me. Rather, his arms are open, and he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, bearing that burden of sin, and I will give you rest. Another application is in the last phrase of verse 19, telling us to continue to do good, no matter what trial you face, no matter what persecution may come your way, continue to do the good deeds that God has before ordained for you and for me to do. Have you noticed that it's often those who suffer the most, often those who have the toughest circumstances in life who make the greatest difference in the lives of others? Despite their suffering, they continue to do good living out their faith in Jesus Christ. And it makes an impact because we see the enormity of, of their suffering and the hardship of their circumstances, and yet we see the power of faith coming forth out of their lives. Continue to do good. Also, this passage reminds us that when we are insulted and ridiculed and suffer, we must make sure that it is because we bear the name of Christ that we suffer for righteousness' sake and not for other reasons. We have perhaps all known professing Christians who are ridiculed and disdained not for righteousness' sake, but simply because they have an obnoxious personality or nature. Peter points out in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or, or an evildoer or even a meddler. That verse covers a lot of ground. There's a great difference between a murderer and a meddler, yet both of them will suffer. But it's not the type of suffering that a believer suffers when they suffer for righteousness' sake. There's a big difference when we suffer because we bear the name of Christ. Whose message do you think most people would rather hear? Would they rather hear the message of Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, telling us that we will face suffering in this life and that it is even according to God's will as he sanctifies and purifies us and allows us to face ridicule that comes our way because we bear his name? 
Or do you think people would rather hear the message of one of America's most popular preachers, a handsome man with a winsome smile who tells you that God's will for your life is that you have plenty of wealth, that you have good health, that you have many friends, that you basically have heaven right here on earth. Life is great right here on earth for those who have true saving faith in Christ alone. There is an inner joy that is so great that it is described by Peter and by other writers of scriptures as indescribable joy. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Despite the persecutions, despite the ridicule, despite the circumstances, the trials and temptations, there is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Even for a martyr like Gildo de Bray, as he faced the gallows, he had a peace which surpasses all understanding because he knew that his only hope and his only comfort in life and in death is that he truly belonged to his faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that nothing could separate him from the love of his eternal God. There is also reconciliation with God the Father through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ to where we can call out to God the Father, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the overflowing fountain of all good, the omniscient, omnipotent, eternal God. We can call out to Him, Abba, Father, and bring to Him our adoration and praise as well as the burdens of our hearts as the Holy Spirit intercedes in our prayers with groanings too deep for words. And there is the tie that binds the communion of saints, the sweet fellowship that we have with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who are also in the family of God and in the same pilgrimage through a hostile world and being equipped and strengthened and persevered, preserved by the grace of God. And the best, as it is often said, the best is yet to come. I trust and I pray that your hope is not in the prosperity gospel, that your hope is not in your self-righteousness, that your hope is not in some perceived obedience that you have to the law of God, but rather that your trust and your hope, your faith, is rooted and established in Jesus Christ alone. He came to this earth as a man of sorrows, to suffer and die and rise again for the salvation of all those who in humble repentance and true saving faith look to him and identify with him through their sufferings as they bear his name regardless of the circumstances they face. May that describe you and may that describe me this evening and always. Amen. Lord our God, you know more than we know what it's like to live in a hostile world. For you, Lord Jesus, were persecuted at every turn 
whether by the Pharisees and their self-righteous disdain of you or by the devil who constantly tempted you and tried to ensnare you and to keep you from doing your Father's will. Yet you live that perfect life and having covered our sins with your precious blood, you impute to us your righteous perfection. And in the meantime, you grant us your Holy Spirit through the word to strengthen us against all the hostility that we face in the world and the troubles and trials that enter into our lives. So we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for your gracious work in redemption and that you will indeed, having begun a good work in us, carry it on to the day of Christ Jesus when we leave the hostility of this world to enter into your presence to bask in your glory and to praise your name eternally. And we look forward to that day and pray in Jesus' name.